One of the many things we love about road trips is visiting people along the way. Sometimes visiting is the purpose of the trip. We drive across the state or across the country to visit family or friends. Sometimes visiting people is what we do on our way to somewhere else. We take a detour to drop in on an old friend or a second cousin twice removed. When I was growing up as a kid, every few summers we would drive from New York to Miami to visit my grandmother. Three days, two nights on the road, station wagon, no air conditioning, no seat belts. The only entertainment system was car bingo and fighting with my brother. One summer, we drove from New York to Dallas to visit some old college friends of my parents. The next summer, we drove from New York to St. Paul, Minnesota for the same reason. And during the course of the year, we drive all over the tri-state area to visit family for the holidays. And chances are you did the same thing and you still do the same thing. It's one of the reasons we go on the road to visit people to let people know they matter to us, that we care about them, that we want them in our lives. And so we go out of our way to make sure we spend time together. So I guess we shouldn't be surprised that as Jesus makes his way from Galilee down to Jerusalem, that he visits people along the way. Sometimes it's just a conversation by the side of the road. Sometimes he settles down and has dinner with somebody. Now we're learning a lot about Jesus, about ourselves as we make this road trip from Galilee to Jerusalem. We're working our way through the travel narrative in Luke's gospel, chapter 9 through chapter 19. And we've been learning that when we go on the road with Jesus, we need to leave some things behind. When we go on the road with Jesus, we need to learn, we need to to, to pray as we go. Today we're going to learn some things about the people we meet along the way, how we treat them, and in particular, how we engage and treat people who are different from us. As I think about those trips my family and I took as I was, when I was a kid, the people we were visiting were really people like us. White people, middle class people, all of them Christian in one sense or another, and all of them with a certain affinity for pizza and bagels and certain sports teams. <laughs> people like me, like us. And I'm sure the same would be true of you and the people you visited as a kid and the people you visit now when you go on the road. Think for a minute about the people you visit when you get in the car and go somewhere. Think about uh, the people you socialize as you make your way through the week, through work, in the halls of your school. Think about your social calendar. Chances are most of the people you spend time with are people who culturally, demographically look like you. Now, there's nothing especially wrong with that. It's, it's, it's natural to be drawn to people because it's, it's easy, it's comfortable. But is it good? Is it redemptive? Is it Christ-like? What would our social calendars look like if Jesus were filling them out? What would our church fellowship look like if we valued one another the way Jesus valued people? What might we be missing by limiting ourselves to people who are like us? Those are some of the questions we're going to go after as we make our way with Jesus on the road to Jerusalem today. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke again, chapter 14, looking at verses 1 through 14, three scenes all taking place on a Sabbath day. Luke 14, verse 1. 
One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of the body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. So here's Jesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem. There are important things waiting for him, but he stops on the way to observe the Sabbath, to worship at a local synagogue. And afterward, apparently, he gets invited to brunch at the home of a local religious leader, a Pharisee. Now, Luke is, calls our attention to the fact that he was a prominent Pharisee. So that may mean he was wealthy, may mean he had certain rank in the community or in the synagogue. He was highly regarded as a spiritual leader. And chances are the other guests invited to brunch that day were also prominent people, everyone except for one. Luke also tells us there was a sick man there. And Luke, the physician, describes his condition as an abnormal swelling of the body, sometimes called dropsy in the ancient world. It was an uncomfortable and unattractive condition. And no doubt it made the dinner guests uncomfortable to be in such close proximity to someone with such an unattractive and unappealing condition. And what was worse, in the eyes of many people, including these Pharisees, this man's condition was probably his own fault. He must have done something wrong for God to have inflicted him with this condition. Now, before we're too hard on the Pharisees for thinking that way, we should probably ask ourselves if we sometimes tend to think that way as well about people with problems. That in some way, it must be their fault. If they worked harder, they wouldn't be in such financial distress. If he or she dressed more fashionably, they'd be more popular. If they took better care of themselves, they wouldn't have so many health problems. Now we do that in part to distance ourselves from their condition. And we do it as well to convince ourselves that the prosperity or the popularity or the good health that we enjoy is somehow our own doing. And that makes us feel better about what we enjoy and a little less uncomfortable about what they don't have. And so in this first scenario, Jesus and Luke cast the spotlight on these two people at opposite ends of the social-spiritual ladder. There's a prominent Pharisee at the top of the ladder and an uncomfortably sick man at the bottom of the ladder. Now, these two people would normally not be sitting together around a dinner table, but Jesus somehow has brought them together and shown a spotlight on the two of them as if there's a point he wants to make. Now, the point could be about the fact that the Sabbath was made for people, that it's made for healing and for help and for restoration, and Jesus is going to go on to heal and restore this man. The thing is, Jesus has made that point many, many times before, and much more dramatically than this. So 
I have a sense, in light of the way this story is framed and what's surrounding it, that Jesus is making yet another point. Look at what he says. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. What he's pointing out is that this man doesn't matter enough to them. If he did, if he did matter, then they would have, they would have not hesitated to help him or to rejoice at his healing just like they would have if it was one of their own children or even one of their animals that had been helped and healed. But because he's not one of them, because of his unfortunate condition, because of his place in society, this man doesn't matter as much to them as some other people matter to him. And so I think this isn't a story primarily about what's lawful on the Sabbath. This is a story about who matters on the Sabbath. And the answer is everyone. Everyone matters on the Sabbath. And in particular, those who are least likely to matter. Those who are different from us. Those we might be unaccustomed to being with or even uncomfortable with. Those who may occupy different places on whatever scales we use to measure our worth and people's importance to us. Jesus isn't just challenging their legalism here. He's exposing their prejudice, their failure to recognize the equal worth and dignity of every human being. Now, as it turns out, that's a pretty relevant point to be making, making in our particular time and society. It's the same point that the Black Lives Matter movement is trying to make. Now, I realize that's a politically charged term today. And by bringing it up, I'm not endorsing that particular movement or everything about that movement anyway. I'm simply calling attention to the fundamental point they're trying to make. That in our society, it seems as though some lives black lives in particular, don't seem to matter as much as other lives matter. People with black and brown skin are far more likely to be in prison, far more likely to attend a substandard school, far more likely to live below the poverty line. They're far less likely to own a home, far less likely to be in senior leadership of any kind of organization, far less likely to get quality health care. And as we've recently discovered, even in the most liberal so-called progressive industry of our time, there's less likely to be nominated for an Academy Award. And before we respond by saying, yeah, but... We need to ask ourselves what Jesus asked the dinner guests that day. If it were members of our family who were consistently experiencing these hardships, wouldn't we want someone to talk about it? Wouldn't we want something to be done about it? And before we say, yeah, but other groups have had it hard too, 
Let's remember there was a time when our Constitution declared that African slaves counted as two-thirds as much as a white citizen counted when it came to representation in Congress. And if you're feeling uncomfortable right now, that's exactly how the guests around the table were feeling that fine Sabbath afternoon. I thought we were just doing brunch. <laughs> what they didn't realize was that it was going to get even more uncomfortable. Let's keep going. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Did you notice that in the first scene, the Pharisees were watching Jesus, trying to catch him? In this scene, Jesus is watching the Pharisees, and he notices something about them. He notices how they choose their seats. Now, have you ever wondered how Jesus always seemed to know exactly what to say and what to do? How he always knew which person to call out of the crowd? He always knew exactly the right question to ask? Well, certainly part of it was the prompting of the Holy Spirit, but part of it was also the fact that Jesus watched. Jesus paid attention. And he watches what's happening in the room or in the house. You can learn a lot when you watch. Have you ever watched people congregate in our, one of our lobbies after services on any of our campuses? If you do, you'll notice a couple things, probably. One of the things you'll first notice, perhaps, is the diversity of the congregation. There are people of all age and culture and background and ethnicity, and, and it's a wonderful thing. We celebrate it. We're so grateful for that. If you keep watching, you'll notice something else, probably, that people tend to congregate with people who are a lot like them. And if you keep watching, what you'll probably notice is that there are one or two or three people scattered around the lobby, standing by themselves, not really congregating with anybody. Those are the kinds of things Jesus tended to notice when he watched things. And what he noticed on this particular day was the way that people were jockeying for position around the table. A table in those days was usually a, a U-shaped affair with uh, the host seated at the head of the table, the top of the U, the next important people to his right and left, and then in descending order away from the head of the table. And so you have these prominent people literally elbowing each other maybe comparing resumes about who's going to sit where. They're vying for this, apparently, on the basis of some kind of criteria, maybe their knowledge of the law, maybe the character of their lives, their status in the synagogue, who knows. But Jesus warns them that when the host shows up, he may have a very different set of standards by which he evaluates things. And he may rearrange the whole table. And some of them may be in for a rude awakening. How much better, Jesus says, to take the lowest place. 
right from the get-go. Take the lowest place, because then the only place you have to go is up. <laughs> now, that word honor brings to mind another politically charged word in our culture today, so we might as well get it on the table. It's the word privilege, often talked about as white privilege in particular. Someone defines it this way, privilege is the advantage one person has over another simply because of the group they belong to, rather than because of anything they've done or failed to do. Now, privilege or advantage could be granted to someone on the basis of race or gender or class or physical appearance or age. And as one person described it, privilege suggests that some people go through life riding the escalator up and others have to take the stairs. It's just harder because that's the way the system works. Now, it doesn't mean that life is always easier for white people or that every white person has it easier than every person of color. And it certainly doesn't mean that, uh, that women or minorities or seniors don't have any advantages, like discount movie tickets, for instance. <laughs> it simply means that the culture or the system is wired to favor certain kinds of people just by virtue of some characteristic of their lives that they have virtually no control over. So realizing again that privilege can be a difficult concept to grasp and even accept, let me try to illustrate it this way. When I step up to speak on a Sunday morning, I don't have to worry that some people might be suspicious of or surprised by my academic credentials like a person with black or brown skin might have to wonder. I don't have to worry that you might be put off by my accent like a non-native English speaker might have to wonder. I don't have to worry that Someone might get up and walk out in protest in the middle of my message like a woman preacher might have to wonder. And I can assure you, every one of them does because it's happened here too many times. I don't have to fear that you think I'm too young to have anything to say. <laughs> or that I'm too old to be relevant. Right? I don't have to get here extra early because I'm not sure how hard it's going to be to get my wheelchair from the parking lot to the pulpit. That's privilege. It means I don't have to be distracted, discouraged, or demeaned by any of these concerns simply because I'm light-skinned, I'm male, I'm typically abled, and in the prime of life, I get a fair hearing. I get the benefit of the doubt. I'm free to just be myself 
and to do my best work. That's privilege. Now, it doesn't mean I'm a bad person for having it. It doesn't mean I, in, I intentionally put other people down to get it. It doesn't even mean that I asked for it because that's not how privilege works. Privilege is just granted to you by the system, usually on the basis of something over which you have no control at all. That's privilege. And if we don't see it, then we're not paying attention. And if we won't acknowledge it, we can never fully be the people or the community God would have us to be. If we don't see it, we're not paying attention. And if we won't acknowledge it, we can never be the people or the community God would have us to be. Now, I understand. This is a difficult conversation to have. And I, some, of, some of you are just wishing I would just preach another nice sermon on prayer like last week. <laughs> I've had these conversations for a while now with all kinds of people, and, and it's never an easy conversation. It's difficult for people to hear about privilege without getting defensive, without saying, yeah, but I had it rough too, or yeah, but that was a long time ago, or yeah, but don't blame me. It's a difficult conversation. But it's the conversation those Pharisees needed to have around the table that day. And it's a conversation we need to have as well. If we're going to be the people in the church that God would have us to be, and if we're going to represent Christ in the world as he wants us to. And Jesus is asking of us what he asks of them. First, that we would have the conversation and secondly, that we would intentionally take the lowest place. That those who have privilege would lay it down so that others might have opportunity. That we might intentionally engage and empower people who are different from us. Now in a minute, I'll give you some practical examples of how to do that, but let's just get to the final scene of the story. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." One commentator said that he was preaching on this passage one Sunday and he challenged his parishioners, the next time you throw a dinner party, don't invite the people you normally like to spend time with. Invite the poor and the disabled and, and the different. That week, he got three dinner invitations. <laughs> I'm not looking for an invite necessarily. <laughs> What exactly is Jesus saying here? There's certainly nothing wrong with having friends and family to dinner. What Jesus is asking is that we open our homes and our hearts as well to people who are different from us, people we don't typically spend time with, people who might otherwise be overlooked by us or by society. And when we do that, Jesus says, we'll be blessed we will be rewarded in ways we could never imagine in this life and in the life to come. So here's how I'd like to summarize the lesson we're learning today. On the road with Jesus, 
we learn that everyone matters, especially those who are least likely to matter. Everyone matters, and in particular, those who are least likely to matter. So yes, it's true. All lives matter, as many people are reminding us today. Everyone matters to Jesus. In fact, they matter so much that when he encounters a community or a culture in which some people don't matter as much as others, he calls that community out. And he asks us to, to acknowledge it. He asks us to enter into conversations. He asks us to to take the lowest place. He asks us to reach out and open our hearts to people who are not like us. So here are some things it means. Practically speaking. Practically speaking, it means that when conversations like this come up, either spontaneously or in some formal setting, instead of immediately responding, yeah, but, we say, tell me more. Tell me more about being a person of color. Tell me more about your abilities and your disabilities. Tell me more about what it's like to be a woman in the church. Tell me more. And then we sit and we listen without arguing. It means that in a meeting or a Bible study, we might choose to speak less or to speak last so that people who might be less likely to speak because of age or culture or language, might feel free to go ahead and speak first. It means that sometimes we'll sing songs in other languages and songs from other generations to let people of that language and generation know that they matter to us and that we're enriched by their presence and by the heritage that they bring to us. It means that as a church, we will be intentionally building relationships with other churches that are not like us, of different size and style and denomination and ethnicity all across the city. And know that we are doing that very intentionally. Once a week, past every week, Pastor Dana goes on the road around the city to spend time with ministry leaders, with churches, with community leaders in all kinds of neighborhoods to build relationships in the name of Christ. It means walking across the lobby to greet someone who's standing alone or to join a group of people who don't look exactly like we do. It means being intentional about recruiting people of all ages and ethnicities and abilities to be part of our team or our ministry or our staff. It means opening up our social calendars and our life communities and our friendship circles to include people who are not like us. And when we do these things, Jesus says, our lives will be enriched. Our lives, our church, our community, and the world will be blessed in ways we can never imagine. So before we finish this morning, I, I want us to hear from someone who has experienced this kind of enrichment by reaching out across a, across a, a barrier.
As many of you know, some years ago, we launched some ministries here at Grace to, to uh, people with different abilities. Our Shine ministry is for special needs children. Our STARS ministry is for cognitively challenged young adults. And we have expressions of these on, on each of our campuses. Uh, the, the Shine ministry to children is led by Elena Hogan, doing a wonderful job with her team. And one of the, perp the, the way that ministry works is to pair an adult or sometimes a teenager with a special needs child to become a buddy on a Sunday morning to just kind of walk through the morning with them as they experience Kids Town. Well, my friend Bud Vasquez uh, recently became a buddy to a special needs, to several special needs kids. And a while ago, he told me what a rich experience it's been. And I said, you have to tell that to the whole church. So would you welcome my friend, Colonel Bud, as he comes to share his story with us. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. As I was preparing for this moment, it just struck me that the words were on you. That when we give a dinner for those less fortunate, aren't, isn't the world saying that we bless them? But no, you will be blessed. So once again, God turns the world upside down. Many of you know my story starts with my wife, Molly, who has a huge heart for those who are differently abled. Her story of turning cancer lemons into ministry lemonade is worth a sermon on its own, but not today. <laughs> Just so you know, I am no saint. When we started working with Shine and with Stars several years ago, I got involved for the not-so-altruistic goal of not driving two cars to Grace. <laughs> it's hard enough to park one car at Grace. <laughs> and you don't know what I was like when I was a kid, because I was pretty bad. And I love my routines, and now I was being asked to interact with people who are different than me. Well, I was compelled for two reasons. First, Pastor, I know you'd think I'm not always listening, but I was, that uh, we should reach out and see where God leaves. Make yourself available. Secondly, I reflected on who did Jesus talk to when he walked the earth? He spent a lot of time with the blind, the lame, the deaf, those with demons and leprosy, those who had disabilities. Once God made me realize it is not us and them it is not ministering to people who are different than me. It is ministering with people who are different than me. That I found an amazing blessing. I think a glimpse of what heaven is like on earth. It started with watching the people who stepped up. Elena and Tommy and Angela and Bethany and Bob and Jay, Tina and Tim and many others who were stepping up to help people in grace, members of the body of Christ who needed help. It was the heartfelt gratitude of parents who were able to worship, some for the first time in years, knowing their kids were safe and cared for, a gratitude that blossomed into real community. It was the unconditional love of the kids and young adults themselves who the world calls disabled. But when I saw them, I realized God doesn't consider them disabled. I watched them pray better and more fervently and sing their hearts out in worship and praise God unashamedly, not complaining, being optimistic and God-centered, and just being fun. They don't have angles on being nice to you. They just appreciate it. It was kind of like God was tapping me on the shoulder. Hey, Vasquez, what about you? I have a dozen stories like that, watching kids who in the world will not experience many simple things that we often take for granted watching their kids and their parents smile, relax, have fun, feel loved unconditionally, 
and cared for, watching that community grow. It was and is to me, as I said, a glimpse of heaven on earth. I found joy and blessing when I stepped out of my swim lane, made myself available to God, turned it over to him, and see where he led. Not long ago, the team that Brian mentioned were servicing two families, helping two families. Now, a couple years later, there's 22 families. Now, our work isn't done. There's eight to 10 families who are now seeing that Grace is a welcoming place looking for support, and we're still looking for probably another dozen more helpers. But I want to sum this up with one revelation that I think, I think might speak to you. I started doing this thinking I was going to help them. God used them to help me. Amen. Friends, I realize we've been a challenging conversation we've been having here this morning. And I said, if we felt uncomfortable along the way, that's probably a good thing. Because we need to face our discomfort if we're going to get to better places. So let's dare to enter into these conversations. Let's choose lower places whenever we have the chance. Let's open our hearts and our homes to people who are different from us. Let's give each other the grace to take risks, to make mistakes, to forgive each other and try again. Because our culture desperately needs to see a better way to be human, a better way to be in community. And we, the people of God, the body of Christ, have the, the teaching and the mandate and the power and the opportunity in the church to do that, to live this out in a way that everyone can see. Please know, I or we are not advocating any particular political solution to these problems. We are not aligning ourselves with any particular party or movement or candidate. Each of us make our own spirit-informed decisions on those matters. All we're doing is saying we are going to be intentional about becoming the kind of community God calls us to be and calls his people to be. Believing that Jesus wants every person at his table, people of every age, race, class, gender, and ability, every one of them, to find a seat at his table. And the wonderful thing is that we have an opportunity to do that even this morning, to come together as a diverse community around one table. So let's pray before we do that. As always, Lord, we are amazed at Jesus. He continually surprises, challenges, and blesses us. Thank you for his presence among us, for the way he lived, the things he taught, and more importantly, for the power and transformation that he offers by your Holy Spirit that we might become the people and the community you would have us to be for your glory, for our joy, and for the sake of the world. Meet us now as we come together around this table. Unite our hearts in Christ, we pray. Amen.